on work as a society, all of us. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. That no people on earth are so fearless or daring or determined. The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. This is the most macro environment as I've ever seen. Undercapitalized, the wrong people, bad market conditions. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Welcome back to the TEO podcast. I'm Taylor Lasseter. Today we are we're still in Idaho. We are in this is Hayden, right? Yes, sir. Near Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm with Tom Robinson here. He is a ultra tax professional up in this area. Um, him and I basically just met. So yeah. it's pretty cool, but we have some acquaintances that hooked us up together. And so we're going to talk about what he does, who he is. Um, like always, thank you for all the support on the podcast. Please continue to share it with everybody. That's the only way this thing is growing. I'm not paying for ads or anything. So, um, Tom, thanks for being here, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. What, uh, who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? Yeah, so my name is, again, Tom Robinson, and I'm happy to be on this podcast, and I'm super excited about what you have going on, man. I love that you're interviewing small businesses and traveling around the country. I think that's awesome, man. But to tell you a little bit about myself, uh, you know, Idaho has such a, uh, I don't know, uh, fear of people moving from California. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So there's this giant influx of people. So um, I'm from California originally. I was born in Long Beach and raised uh, just outside downtown LA. Um, my dad was independent contractor working for the government at the time, and uh, we ended up moving to 29 Palms. Uh, that's where he started working. We moved to Yucca Valley which is where a lot of our acquaintances know each other from. And uh, yeah, just went, lived out there, came out of the city kind of kicking and screaming. Uh, You know, growing up in the city is a lot different than going out to the desert where there's nothing. But as soon as I got a four-wheel drive truck, I realized open air and open spaces for me, man. (laughs) So, Uh, I mean, how long were you in Long Beach for? So Long Beach, I was just born there, uh, was in Paramount when I was uh, really little, which is like kind of in between Compton and Downey area. Okay. And then we moved from there uh, to Hacienda Heights and then from there to the Yucca Valley, Joshua Tree, Palm Springs area. So you were old enough to like know that you were moving from like beach area to desert where there's nothing yeah definitely so i bet that was a kick in the pants yeah definitely it was such a short time period too because basically at the time what was going on in the country was uh uh, bill clinton was president and he was backing down uh a lot of the bases and stuff like that across the country so el toro and tustin where my dad was stationed at was basically getting shut down and so by the time that we knew we were going to move to the time that we moved into our house was about 28 days. Oh, so shoot. pretty fast. <laughs> uh, um, but we, I was in Boy Scouts at the time, and uh, my dad and I took a camping trip to Josh Tree National Park, and we went the back way out of the park through uh, 
29 Palms, Joshua Tree, Yucca mm-hmm. Valley. And he's like, hey, how would you like to live here? And I'm like, I would never live there. That's about <laughs> the worst place I could ever imagine. And uh, he's, you know, week and a half, two weeks later, yeah, he's like, you remember that place? <laughs> yeah, you're moving there. So I but, feel like, yeah, I feel like that's how most of anybody that, like the settlers back in the day, they were like, I would never live here ever. And then some catastrophic thing happened and they were like, okay, I guess we're living here. Yeah. And to be honest, like, like I said, when I first came to the desert, I hated it. Like, uh-huh. why am I here? But honestly, like it grows on you, like mm-hmm. the wildflowers uh, in the spring and off-roading and being able to hike whenever you want and have national park right there. It's pretty awesome place to be, but definitely not when you're yeah. a kid from the city. Oh yeah. Yeah. See, I, like I grew up there. I mean, I, you know, my dad was stationed out there. He's from Southeast Texas where it's like hot and humid and bugs everywhere and stuff. So when he got stationed out there, I think I want to say he said it was like the winter. He went through a winter out there and it wasn't that bad. I mean, it gets cold, but it's like, it's still pretty nice. It's 28 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, uh, yeah, this ain't bad. And so he stayed out there, and that's why I grew up there. Uh, I hated it as a kid. Like, I was like, ugh, I want to go somewhere where it's green and there's rain and all this stuff. And then I moved to somewhere where it was like that. I moved to North Carolina whenever I joined the military. And I was like, yeah, no. I appreciate the desert. I still don't want to go back and live there, but I appreciate it a lot more. So right. so were you in Camp Lejeune? Yeah. Uh, yeah yep. All right. Yep. I have uh, several clients from there, and okay. my brother uh, ended up moving uh, to North Carolina too, a little bit further away, but he's in Hickory, okay, uh, North Carolina. Is that closer to like Raleigh or Charlotte or something like that? I think it's uh, my uh, North Carolina geography is pretty bad, <laughs> but it's uh, probably about an hour and a half, I think, from Charlotte, Okay, maybe yeah. around there. Yeah, I mean, you get all the colors of the rainbow out there because, you know, beach town... Which I actually really enjoyed the beach out in North Carolina. Um, but, you know, my yeah. life took me other places. We went there this uh, summer for 4th of July. And the humidity, man, oh when the gosh, temperature and dude. the humidity level are um, in unison, it's mm-hmm. not for me. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so moved out to 29. And then I'm assuming you stayed there for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, well, for a long time, for sure. So I uh, came out the end of my eighth grade year, kind of going into high school, uh, ended up becoming involved in school really heavy uh, sports. Um, I was a all CIF athlete in football, soccer and baseball. Um, From there, you know, just made a lot of friends. We just had a great time, like. We would ditch school, go off-roading. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the school was a little smaller at that <laughs> point, so uh, we could get away with a little bit more. What uh, what years were that? So uh, I moved to the desert in uh, 99, and then I graduated high school in 2003. Okay. Yeah, I went to I went to JS from first grade all the way to eighth grade. Oh, man. Um. And then I switched over to Calvary Baptist, my ninth and tenth oh, yeah. grade year, uh, which was probably good for me because, you know, like those are the years where I feel like if you're not hanging out with the right crowd, that kind of determines your future. No, you for know? sure. So I went over to that ultra strict kind of lifestyle, 
And then I went over to Yucca High okay. to finish it out and stuff. I felt that was a good balance. But yeah, yeah the, the JS crowd, I, it, it, I remember it, it grew. Like the, the, the school just like took off for a while. And like sports were, they had every sport and football games and basketball and everything was booming. Yeah, man. Right after, uh, I was going to say, it was a super small school when I went there. Um, and uh, like I said, we got to get away with a lot more than mm -hmm. after I was there. But uh, I ended up coming back to Joshua Springs and uh, ended up coaching football for 11 years there. So okay. I had a lot of times. I, I think that's how I remember you. Yeah, so yeah. I was a... Um, assistant head coach for a while, offensive coordinator for a while, offensive line coach. And then mm -hmm. uh, after um, Jackie Roberts and Israel were gone, say, yeah. uh, I ended up being head coach after that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's where I know you from then. Because I recognize your face when I walk in. I'm yeah. like, how do I? Being on the sideline for all those yep. years, man. Uh -huh. Yeah. What uh, I had, I played football with Israel in junior high. Yeah. So um, I think I only did that for one year though. Um, but yeah, I, I remember those days, man. It was wild. Like the, the whole atmosphere of football games and making it to playoffs. Yeah, it like was, it was a giant deal. So like, uh, for those of you who don't know, Joshua Springs was a powerhouse in football for a little while. We played eight man football, one of the smallest divisions in California. And, uh, we ended up winning eight state titles in 11 years and attracting a ton of fans. We ended up traveling different states and you know definitely shout out to all those guys israel mike stitt uh chad beasley wilson don westwall all those guys yeah it's uh have you been back to yucca recently so i haven't uh i the last time i was there was probably about two and a half years ago yeah so it's been a been a little while it's it's from knowing what it used to be to to now, it's like everything's shrunk down. So many people have moved out of the area. It's gotten crazy expensive, like all this stuff. It's really sad to see Yucca is like, I don't know. I, I feel like yeah. it's just deteriorating. No, I kind of agree with that a little bit from an outside perspective. Obviously, I'm not boots on ground there, but uh, once Joshua Tree became so popular, a lot of the local town ended up getting bought out by Airbnbs and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I think that has a big impact on the community. Um, but I I don't know. I, from the people that are still there, they still love it. But I definitely think that the atmosphere has changed a yeah, lot. I mean, I was there this last Christmas, and it was like, what you it know, was. like there was like grub steak days. They would bring in rodeo and the circus and demolition derby and monster trucks and parades and all this stuff and like none of that happens anymore it's like yeah the, i remember grubstakes days was a huge deal the whole town would come out like you said they'd bring in monster trucks they'd have the demolition derby they'd have all that stuff um i don't know if they still have that or not but i, I don't think yeah. it, it near on the scale that it used to be because yeah. people used to travel all over from southern california to come out and see that for sure yeah now they go out there for like you know spiritual like trips, ayahuasca journeys, and yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I have, uh, you know, several clients in the area that are um, <laughs> connoisseurs of that, and they actually are the. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, they're actually the shaman and the sound bath and crystal healing and all that kind of wow. stuff, and yeah, big following yeah. out there for sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 
You can definitely smell it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's true. Yeah. So when did uh, when did you get into the tax world? Yeah. So um, in high school, like I said, I was really heavy into sports and stuff like that, and I knew I needed a a job. So um, I was like, well, let me do an internship and see what's going on. And I kind of had a couple of places in mind. My uncle uh, had an insurance agency um, in Palm Desert on El Paseo. And so I talked about doing uh, insurance with him, but working with family is one of those things. Like, I know my uncle, but how is that relationship going to be if I end up being his employee? Right. Like, so uh, my buddy RJ, who's one of my best friends, his uh, parents owned a, a, a tax office. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, what do I want to do when I grow up? I wanted to be a, a white-collar crime investigator oh. and then work for the FBI. And then from there, I wanted to be um, like a private investigator. Mm-hmm. So having an internship in a business would be a really good stepping stone in that direction. So uh, I contacted uh, Jack and Glenda Rarick, who uh, we did our interview. It's Again, it's my buddy's, right. uh, uh, my best friend's parents. And so we did the job interview at Disneyland. <laughs> like, the, you know what I mean? We originally had it set up for the day of prom. And then Glenda's like, hey, Tom, it's prom. <laughs> Why don't you go home and get ready? Like, who cares about this? It can wait. Uh, so they ended up interviewing me at Disneyland, and I brought in a resume, and I had all this stuff. I was super nervous. And uh, again, it's my my buddy's right. parents. And, uh, like, I'm at their house, like, every day. And uh, they ended up hiring me. And so uh, – Taxes is definitely not something you set out and be like, yeah, I want to go I do I want to be a tax, tax collector. Yeah, yeah de- <laughs> definitely not. The Bible talked really good about those people. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so it's not something I, you know, kind of set out to do, but I realized um, Rarick's had a really great environment. It was a great place to work. Um, great staff. We were pretty much all family. Um, we'd get together and pray all the time. Um, so it was an awesome place to kind of grow and I realized I kind of had a knack for doing taxes is something I like to do interacting with different clients on a daily basis you have different people from different walks of life everyone coming in is completely different and unique each situation's unique and so there was something I realized that uh, I could do long term and yeah it's been really good for me and my family so far for sure yeah that's really cool you know I've, I've talked about especially now everybody's been pushed into like college tech like college tech job or some other arbitrary liberal arts degree or something but like there's so many jobs that people shy away from trade industry or in your case taxes and stuff and they're never going to know if they actually like that thing unless they try it no and that's kind of like how you were you, you know you're just stepping in let's see let's see what happens and it ends up being what you make your career out of yeah, and one of the things my brother always talked to me about it because my parents push college super hard. Go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. Well, I went to college 
right out of high school, and I was still working at Rarick's. I took an internship while I was in high school, and basically I was still working at Rarick's, going to college, coming back and working the weekends and stuff like that. But I realized by the time I was done with college, I'd have so much student loan debt that, you know, between my wife and I going to a private university or something like that, that we were just going to be buried in student loan debt. So at the time, it was 2005, I was like, you know what, I'm 19, it's kind of a not something that someone's going to do, but I dropped out of college and I decided to take that student loan debt that I would have and ended up buying my first house in 2005. Oh, it was yeah. a pretty awesome deal Yeah. until the floor fell out in 2007 right. and my house was now worth 120000 less than what I paid for it. But yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I mean, it, I still think, despite that, like I still think that was a better idea. No, than, for sure, for yeah. sure. And um, honestly, it was a super blessing because um, you know I could even make the payments, even though uh, you know my pro- my price value dropped so much. So we kept the house; we didn't lose it or anything like that. Just sucked with to tell a twenty year old kid that hey, that sure. house that you bought is now one hundred twenty thousand less than oh, what yeah. you pay for. It. But once the Joshua Tree market picked up, we ended up doing fine off the house and selling it for a profit anyway. But um, yeah, real estate's super important to get into. And I felt that at the time that that was the best thing for myself and my family. So it was a choice between having a career that I don't need a college degree for and um, you know, owning a piece of real estate. And so that's what we ultimately decided was the best thing for our family at the time. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, now, you know, the the huge value of real estate, getting invested in real estate and stuff like that. No, for sure. And it's a huge deal, especially in the North Idaho community um, because um, a lot of the land out here is getting bought up by people from out of state and stuff like that. So it's driving up the prices for a lot of the um, people who've lived here for a long time. But yeah, you can see the the value. Just look at the price increases, you know, from Yucca Valley where we were talking about before and even North Idaho. Like you can see, you know, in 2015, I was looking at property in Athol, which is a little north of us. And it was... Um, Hundred twenty-five thousand uh, for twenty-five acres. Oh wow! And now the lots are alone five acres are selling for two fifty to three hundred. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, because I'm now looking at um, moving up here, but there's I, I'm thinking about using this VA loan. They kind of changed some things with it where. It used to be if you wanted to buy a big piece of property, it had to have an existing building on it, and then you had to live there for at least a year, which is no, like, unless you have cash to do that, like, you have enough income to pay for that note, which is usually a lot, um, there's no point to it. But now they changed it to where you can buy the land, also use that to build uh, up to a fourplex, and then as long as you live in one of the units, you can rent out the other ones. Um, for at least a year and then you can rent out all four if you want. And I was like, well, that makes way more sense. You know, the entire veteran community has been waiting for that because they're like, now there's incentive for us to actually do this. Yeah, I think the, you know, owning a, a, a duplex, triplex, fourplex is an amazing thing because you can help, you still qualify for the main home. It's the, you know, 
that's you're going to be your primary residence, but you can still get rental income off sure. the side off that. And I remember when my dad was looking at a VA loan, um, there was a lot of strictness when it came to purchasing houses. It had to be, you know, no maintenance, no upkeep, uh, or not maintenance and upkeep, but like you couldn't walk into a fixer upper. It had to be a well right. done house. There had to be this stuff. And then the buyers had to, um, I'm sorry, the sellers had to pay the closing costs. So here when my dad was looking at stuff, like the market was so hot, the mm-hmm. sellers are like, we're not, we're not going to do a VA loan because we're not going to pay for the closing costs. Sure. So there was a lot of that when we moved out here for sure. Yeah. I feel like right now, I mean, things are starting to come down ish. I feel like right now is a similar issue we probably run into, but I'm excited to talk to Dave on Thursday because like I can, you know, now I'm making all these connections. This is why I'm doing the podcast. No, for sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, well, let's back up for a sec. Um, yeah. So you, you started the intern. What was the difference between that versus like actually full blown? So when I first started, it was uh, basically getting my f- feet wet in bookkeeping. Uh uh, learning, you know, what is a debit, what is a credit, how do the accounts work. There's a lot of polling files and uh, filing, assembling tax returns and, you know, uh, doing that kind of stuff. Um, but I ended up getting my tax license pretty early. I got it within the first year that I was there. Uh, ended up um, uh, taking H&R block classes Uh the Rarix told me that that would be the best thing to do is some take some H&R Block classes, get my license through them. I graduated H&R Block school. <laughs> uh, top, I think it was like top third in my class. And uh, instantly H&R Block offered me a job, which was pretty weird because I'm like, here I am. I think I'm like 18, 19, um, just graduated you know, H&R Block school. And they're offering me a job. It kind of made me think of what kind of preparers are at some of those type of facilities. Like, I'm sure that they are just entry-level people. I'm sure they have staff members with a lot of experience. But it just kind of made me think and definitely grateful that Rarix gave me the opportunity to kind of step in and learn from them. Because Glinda used to work for the Internal Revenue Service. Jack had second generation tax preparers. So yeah, the yeah. amount of experience between those two of them was tremendous. Which so. is nuts in a small town like Yucca to have that kind of experience at a tax office. No, for sure. I I definitely walked into a great opportunity. Like I said, Jack, his dad, Jack, uh, was a tax preparer in uh, 29 Palms, I think, mm-hmm. for 30 or 40 years. And then Jack <clears throat> pretty much took over... Um, same line of business. He ended up buying a couple of local firms out. And then, yeah, everything's small, community-based. And that's definitely what I fell in love with, being a small business, uh, community, all that kind of stuff. Because uh, like I am here, we were there, um, super involved in the community, you know, different things, definitely with the church and different organizations and stuff like that. So I definitely think that the small business gives you the opportunity 
to really impact your community, not just from a business standpoint, but from like a community based standpoint too. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been talking to people recently about, um, you know, when like an economic downturn starts happening, it's really easy to just, everybody just starts freaking out. But if you look in the past, like all of the big, like Great Depression or something, um, all of the, the ways that people survived through that was bringing everything more local and then doing business local. You bring that humanity back to doing business together and stuff like that. Right now we're so globalized. Everything is imported from somewhere else. And, you know, especially in the tax world, I feel like everybody's trying to like do their, not necessarily like do their taxes right, but they're not trying to pay too many taxes. Yeah, I think everyone that comes in my office is like, I like to pay my fair share or as little as possible. And I'm like, yeah. well, how can I pay negative taxes yeah, and, and not get in trouble? It's one of those things. It's like, <laughs> I can't impact that. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's stuff that obviously we know via tax code and stuff like that, but it's, Hey, what did you claim? Like mm-hmm. how much tax withholding did you have? How much expenses did you have? And some of that's completely out of my control. So yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. yeah. yeah um, so I grew up with Andy Frazier. Oh, yeah. And I know they were all, super, you know, everybody's super close. Um, but I always remember the Rarex had like the nice fancy motorhome. Oh, no, When we go sure. camping and stuff, I was like, oh, there's the Rarex. They got the big yeah. motorhome and stuff. And someone always said like they own the tax office. But I had in my head like taxes are bad. Taxes are evil. Yeah. And, uh, you know, tax collector this, tax collector that. And I'm like, so I kind of always like looked at them like, those people like they have all this money and they're taking our money it, like no. my very naive little kid mind was just yeah. like Ugh. so uh andy frazier man i love that kid i miss him and his brothers um i coached so i played with ben his oldest brother and then i coached both jesse and andy in football and just andy's spirit like oh, i know I, I love that kid to death i haven't seen i haven't seen him or talked to him or anything and forever no it's been a long time for sure where are they at like Bermuda? so uh, i don't i <laughs> honestly i'm not sure where jesse or um uh andy are uh but ben i know is in oregon and i guess he lives right off the creek and he's enjoying life and stuff like that so yeah. um honestly i haven't talked to any of the frasers for a long time but they also uh, Steve, their dad owned a tax office as well, so he yeah, worked. Right. He worked with Jack, and then uh, ended up opening up uh, another tax office in town. And so, yeah, families, uh, two different tax offices, same right. Town, so, but they're like friends. They were all everybody was friends. It seemed like, even though they were technically competition. Yeah. I, you know, I definitely think that uh, the Frasers and the Rarics had uh, uh, grew up, you know, together, and uh, especially all the boys and uh, Carissa um, definitely grew up, you know, super close, more than just regular cousins for sure. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's one of the thing. Like competition, we say competition. Everybody has to pay taxes, so it's not like you're losing people. Like there's. If you're in the tax world, like there's somebody that's going to use your services. Yeah, I, and I think uh, you know, 
especially in today's age, you have the turbo taxes, you have tax layer, you have all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's good for a lot of individuals, and I definitely think that there's money to be saved. But when taxes get a little bit more complicated, um, sometimes a professional, um, just to look over stuff, just to give guidance, stuff like that is definitely important when it comes to uh, definitely looking at some taxes. Um, different situations, you know, yeah, you could probably wing it and do it yourself, but there's a lot of times that people will end up being like, hey, I was using TurboTax and then all of a sudden, you know, this happened or that happened or I got a letter um, and then they're in my office. So it's one of those things that those are useful tools, but at the same time, like, they definitely feed me business too because they can only do so much. Right. I mean, AI is getting scary good, but that's one of those things that, um, you know, sometimes a professional is better for sure. Yeah, I had my brother-in-law, Dawson Pendergrass. Um, yeah, I coached him in football as well. Yep. <laughs> um, Love that kid as well. <laughs> It's funny, like when I had him on the podcast, that was the most I'd ever talked to him. Oh, really? He's been married to my sister for like five years. They just had a kid, and like that was the most I'd ever been able to speak to him because you know we're I was in the, either in the military or something. We were always separate. But uh, he and he now was works in the for, Air Force as well. He's in the Air Force, yeah. And thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, he started working for Rarick Tex, and you know he was kind of new at it, so I was asking him questions and stuff, and he was still he's still learning it and everything, but. He said the same thing. We talked about the TurboTax thing and how it affects and is basically the same thing. It's like there's a certain point where like the site will say like, you know, if you want to do it for a business or something, you can you can go through TurboTax, but like having the personal interaction cuz there's little nuances to everything and yeah, and so one of the things that we do a little different than a lot of other um, tax offices as well is when you come to um, Robinson Financial Services, RFS, um, we sit down and try and take the time to get to know the person a little bit more. Um, hey, what's going on in your life? You know, how are things? More than just taxes. Um, and then we build that relationship to kind of figure out, all right, hey, this is what we need to do for taxes so our clients call us pretty much year-round and be like, hey, Tom, we're thinking about doing this. What is that exactly? Um, what should we do? How should we do that? No software um, is going to be able to sit down and hold somebody's hand saying, hey, you're setting up a new business. What is the best way to get that going? Is there business licenses that you need to get? Is there state filing that you need to do? Um, is there anything that um, we should be looking at or what should we do? Um, should we join a chamber? Like none of the tax softwares are going to have that personal connection and personal relationship with clients to be able to walk them through that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and from a business like owner perspective, you have a vision for your company. So when you're looking at how do I scale this, a lot of the like apprehension to, to scale your business is like, okay, well, I don't know what this looks like tax wise or like how do oh, I set sure. this up to where I'm not like putting money in the wrong place like how do I make it all flow smoothly 
and stuff like that. So that's that's just something like you're not going to get on TurboTax, at least right now. You know, no, for sure. <laughs> like I said, AI is getting scary good every day. So mm-hmm. we'll see when the robots start taking over everyone's jobs. <laughs> please, please don't let that happen. <laughs> um, so when did uh, when did you meet your wife? So <laughs> we've. Uh, uh, been dating since she was in eighth grade and I was a freshman in high school. Oh, wow. Um, we both went to JS. Um, we were supposed to go to youth group after school and uh, we both ditched and went to a buddy's house. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, we just ended up meeting right then. And it was kind of a crazy story because I wanted to go out with her, but she was... Um, I mean, we're talking eighth grade here, so it's a little <laughs> different, but she was going out with a buddy of mine at the time and, uh, they were kind of on the rocks and I kind of knew that. And, uh, so I asked her out, she's like, no, <laughs> I'll never go out with you. I was like, all right, cool. Challenge so, accepted. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so the next day I went up and I was like, Hey, do you want to go out with me? And she's just like, no, leave me alone, like <laughs> you crazy person. And so uh, that trend continued for about 30 days. Um, every day at school, I'd kind of go up, um, be like, hey, do you want to go out with me? And then one day I was playing um, basketball, actually. She came up and said yes. And I was like, yes, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And so, yeah, so she basically was tired of me asking her out and uh, decided, uh, I'll give this guy a shot. I'll break up with him in a couple weeks, and it'll be whatever. And that turned into being married for um, what almost 18 years and having four kids and being together since 99. So it's, yeah. it's been a hot minute. So if there's any lesson to be learned out there. For all you people that just swipe left and right on an app now, persistence. But don't stalk people. But don't stalk people. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> little disclaimer there. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So I know, uh, well, sort of know just by phone conversations, your wife is a nurse now. Yeah, so she uh, worked for uh, Dr. Lombardo Dentistry in Yucca Valley okay. in high school. She was an intern there. Um, became a monitor technician in the ICU, I think, when she was 18. Um, and she went to nursing school, uh, got her uh, RN license, and worked in the narrow ICU and Desert Regional for the whole time till we moved out here. And then she went back to school, ended up getting her degrees in advanced critical care, and she also got her bachelor's degree in nursing and master's degree in nursing and yeah she's she's yeah she's a student awesome yeah. yeah and now she's uh teaching nurses out here at north idaho college so it's nursing uh is a great profession but the problem is you're pretty stuck on schedules so are you working swing shift are you working night shift you're working at least half the holidays you're working every you know, other weekend and you're working 12 hour shifts unless they need you over because there's nursing shortages. And then all of a sudden you're working a 24 hour shift. So 
one of the things that when we moved from California to Idaho, we wanted to totally embrace a new lifestyle and a new way of living. So it was a giant pay cut um, for what we were used to, but uh, she ended up teaching and that gave her the opportunity of, uh, you know, getting off work at three o'clock or three thirty to pick up the kids. She's off every weekend. She has a couple weeks left of school, and then she's off all summer with the kids. So it's yeah. definitely what we wanted to embrace moving out here. Is more a laid back lifestyle, um, not the hustle and bustle, not the hey, I need to get this biggest toy and stuff like that that we had in Idaho or in California. Not that that's not out here. But it's just a different lifestyle and change of pace. Like, sure, you can schedule a contractor to come to your house, and it's the fall, and they won't show up because hey, it's hunting There's, season. Yeah, it's hunting season, <laughs> and now I need to take this week off. So, <laughs> like, it's just a different change of pace. Like, yeah. hey, after work we're closing early and we're going fishing. Like, people literally put that on the sign on their building. It's yeah, definitely something that we like to embrace and to be out here yeah i guess you uh i mean do you do any of that stuff so honestly coaching football for so long um i ended up not really doing a whole lot of hunting uh we ended up going after uh football season to southern idaho on the snake river and do some uh duck hunting okay but out here it's a way of life, man. Oh, like, yeah. It's totally different. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, definitely do some deer, elk hunting for sure. Uh, been I got a compound bow. Been practicing with that the other year. Uh, not last year, but the year before. We ended up getting two turkeys right off our front porch. Uh, they have these razor blade guillotine arrow things, and you hit the turkeys in the head, and it takes their heads right off. <laughs> It's pretty awesome, but uh, yeah, just the wildlife right off the front porch of my house, man. Yeah, I'm staying at uh, the the Jolings house, yeah. and uh, like where they're at, they're like, yeah, we have moose that come up and drink from the little pond or whatever that we have. And I'm like, dang, dude, that's like moose are, can be mean. No, for sure. <laughs> so uh, from our house, uh, we, we live on five acres um, about... 10 minutes from here and we're up on a ridge and so we kind of get all sorts of wildlife we haven't had moose on our property but we've had moose down the street from our property but on our property specifically we have deer every day we have turkey every day uh elk every once in a while we've had a black bear um bobcat came right up to our window uh, you could see the tracks in the snow, took pictures of that, pretty cool. So the wildlife's a big deal. We had a bald eagle that lived on our property for a while. And so, yeah, pretty awesome. I'm glad he's not there anymore because we've got a bunch of chickens now at our house. Mm. So yep. <laughs> we'd have far less chickens if he was still there. Yeah, I uh, I went on my first like legit hunting trip up in Montana near, uh, near Kalispell, Columbia Falls. Oh, yeah. It was actually the... The Kootenai National Forest, but on the Montana side was like where we were at. Um, and dude, I felt like I spoiled myself going on that one because there's literally every ounce of wildlife that you can find during hunting season. I mean, we saw 
mountain lions with their cubs. We saw elk. We saw deer. We saw we saw mule deer. We saw whitetail. We saw foxes. We saw literally everything. Uh, we didn't get anything on that trip, um, but I was just like, dude, this is is so. It's like a postcard everywhere you walk out here. Yeah, and that's that's the way I feel. Like I was always told that fishing, you're out on the water, you're relaxing, you're having a good time. If you catch a fish, that's just the icing on the oh, cake. Yeah. I feel the same way about hunting. I'm out alone mm-hmm. in the middle of the wilderness, which is absolutely something I've always loved to do. I'm surrounded. The leaves are changing colors, so you've got these beautiful pines. You've got, um, you know, uh, all these other trees that are turning yellow and orange and all this stuff. And I'm just hunting through th- or just hiking through this. And... You know, there's creeks and streams, and I'm all by myself out here. And then, all right, if I get a deer and elk, that's awesome. Right. But all this other stuff is, yeah, you know. uh, yeah. It's I, I love this part of the country, and I know, like, it, you know, it gets super cold in the winter and stuff like that. But you know, it's just like it, back where we were at in Yucca during the summer, it gets super hot. So it's like it's yeah, the same thing. That. You don't go outside whenever it's too cold. You don't go outside when it's too hot. It's the same same thing. Well, out here, uh, if you embrace the cold, there's a lot of stuff to do. So um, there's people snowmobiling. There's people, I think there's like three or four ski resorts that are right here. Mm -hmm. Um, I know Schweitzer is one of the world-class resorts that people come to all the time to go uh, skiing and snowboarding. And for locals, if you... Ice fishing, probably. Ice fishing is a big deal out here. Like, they definitely have some... I've wanted to do it, but I, all of my family members and friends are kind of too chicken to go out there with uh, me. But I'll, <laughs> I definitely something I want to do. Yeah, is, I would definitely do that. Yeah, it's so crazy out here. Like, you know, growing up in Southern California, like some things are just wild to me. Like growing up in you know the city, like the the lake freezes over and people are walking on it. Mm-hmm. Like that's a weird concept for me to grasp. Uh, fishing on it, definitely a weird concept for me to grasp. But, like, you look at, you know, some of the northern states and people are driving big rigs on ice. So it's one of those things that, yeah, yeah. it can be done. So we're out. Uh, my nephew came into town. He's in the Navy and my sister. And we wanted to go walk on a lake that's frozen over. We had never done it before. Again, coming from Southern California, yep. lakes don't freeze over. So uh, we did that, and some guy has a bonfire in the middle of the lake on top of the <laughs> ice, and he's out there with a couple of beers, and he's fishing. I'm like, that fire's not going to do anything <laughs> to the ice? But no, it, you know. Science. Yeah. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Way different than what I was expecting. Yeah, I love I love. I've been up to Montana probably think five times now before those was like in the in the winter and i was like ah, i know it gets cold but it ain't that bad you know like i'm kind of like it's, it's all right i always like cold i don't know i'm just kind of like hot-blooded or something um but i went in the fall like right before winter and like you said the leaves are changing colors and it's it's cool out you might get some snow but it's just beautiful i mean it's oh, for sure it's insane like 
you know, and we're, you know, selling this really hard. And I'm sure all the locals here who've been here forever are like, stop talking. Nope. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Um, so. But that being said, we went to Montana for one of my daughter's cheer competitions. And I, we were in Missoula. It was negative eight. But the wind chill was like negative 34. Yeah. Or, you know, between 35 and 40. I don't know. It was terrible. And walking from the parking lot inside, I was carrying my son in one hand and coffees in the other. He's just crying because the cold is so brittle. I thought my fingers were going to break. I'm sure. like, yeah, this is pretty terrible. But, yeah. you know, uh, that's Montana. Like, it doesn't really get that cold here. Yeah, we're kind of in like a bowl or something here. So the, the weather's a little regulated. Yeah, so Coeur d'Alene... Uh, the weather, I feel, isn't really too bad. If you go to the snow belt a little bit higher up, uh, Athol and up towards Bonner's Ferry, they definitely get a ton more snow that way. Yeah, so closer to Canada. Not that far. Yeah. About an hour and a half. <laughs> and that was where you said you wanted to buy that property, right? So, yeah. So, uh, my wife's family is from up here. She has family that lives in Naples near uh, Bonner's Ferry. Uh, her grandfather owns 40 acres in Twin Lakes. Um, they also own property in Athol. And so uh, I think the first time I came up here, uh, I think I was 19. I think somewhere around there, I was 19 years old. Trisha and her family came up here to visit family. Uh, we went to Lake Pondere. We stayed in Bottle Bay. And I just kind of fell in love with the area, you know, coming from somebody who loves the outdoors and stuff like that. We ended up, you know, coming out to this pristine forest, you know, beautiful lakes. Everything's blue. It's the middle of the summer. It's 80 degrees. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, why would I not want to live here? Yeah. And so it's one of those things that, you know... I never wanted to leave California. I have all my family there or had all my family there. It's one of those things that, you know, I never thought that I would live out there. But owning a house out here or doing something like that. But then each year it was like, I think we took vacations out here like 14 of the next 15 years. Yeah, We came out here and little by little it was like this place just grew on me more and more and more. And I was always like... All right, I'm coaching football, and we're having really good success. I'm loving that. I'm loving interacting with these high school, uh, high school young men, and helping mold them into you know into adults. Uh, you know, I'm involved in work. I'm involved in the community. All my family's here, and it was like I'm never gonna move out of California. I love it here, but. California started changing. I started changing. And it was one of those things that, like, I was like, I'm never going to move because of this. And God's like, nope, <laughs> I'm going to kick that door down. And, you know, all your family's moving out of state. Yeah. Um, I no longer started coaching football. I never, you know, you know, this, this, and that. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, I'm going to move to North Idaho. Well, that thought process of moving my family, uh, you know, 
from Southern California to North Idaho, I vomited almost every day. Oh, my gosh. Just <laughs> the thought of, um, are we going to make it? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? And uh, just the thought of that just was so nerve-wracking. And But Trish and I both felt like we had a, you know, God telling us, hey, this is where I want you. And it just opened doors to come up here. And like I said, uh, I can't be in a better place for my family. Like the um, community, uh, the people here, the atmosphere here. We go kayaking all the time. We go fishing all the time. We go hiking constantly. That's just a great place to raise kids. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's cool, too, because both you and your wife have professions where you can go literally anywhere. No, for sure. And that was one of the things I was thinking at the very beginning is, all right, do I become the Walmart tax guy? Like, <laughs> I could get a job there, I think. Like, you know, it's just one of those best things. Best tax guy in Idaho, and he's at Walmart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of those things, I'll be right next to the nail salon in the Walmart have my little <laughs> booth set up, but honestly, I'm sure Trish would like that. She'd probably get free pedicures or something. Honestly, honestly, at that <laughs> time, Trisha was like, "I don't even care. Like, you can do whatever you want." Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that almost brought us out here earlier is, uh, you know, just looking for something new, something different. We uh, applied for a Chick Fil A franchise, mm. and uh, kind of a weird turn. You know, just on a whim, kind yeah. of was like, hey, I'm going to apply for a Chick-fil-A franchise. Well, we ended up going to one of the final steps. Um, and they one of the final steps is the, they kind of pick the locations of what you want. And uh, we picked uh, Western Washington, uh, Bremerton area. My nephew... Uh, was at the naval base out there, and we kind of liked that community. Washington, um, especially Western Washington up north, is really beautiful. Yeah, and so we talked about, you know, seeing if Chick Fil A would open up a franchise out there, or we applied for the Coeur d'Alene, Spokane um, area as well, Spokane Valley, and uh, ultimately. I think Chick-fil-A freaked out because they didn't want me to relocate my family. You know what I mean? They were just kind of nervous about that. So Really? So basically what that looks like is when you get a Chick-fil-A franchise, you actually sit and they'll give you a franchise if you end up meeting the criterias and all that kind of stuff. So I ended up meeting with a rep, but I didn't go to the next step was where... If I, I'll do a formal interview and stuff like that. But I think that's, they ended up giving me a letter in that time. And I think that was one of the reasons is because we were trying to relocate completely different. And like you would have moved to Washington? Yeah. So we were in California at the time. And I think oh, okay. it just kind of spooked them the well, I wasn't looking for a local franchise down there. Yeah. So, so you know, it's a big deal because they're investing time and money into you as well. Is it because they're expecting the customer base to follow you no, or no, something? Nope, no, nothing to do with that. I just think there's too much of a risk factor of giving someone the keys to a franchise when yeah. they're completely relocating in an That's area. That's kind of weird considering your profession. 
you'd think like that would be less of a worry because you know you're a tax dude. Honestly, I, I, you know, thinking about it like that, yeah, I could see that. But no, I, I just think the risk for yeah. them was just too. too I think great. I had looked at it too because I will check like the different, um, the different chains or whatever, and almost all of them said you have to have like a net worth of like at least two million ish. Um, I think in and outs like two and a half million, something like that. And then you have to have like a certain number of years in the food service industry, which I don't have, but it was, you know, I was like, okay, well that kind of narrows your margins down quite a bit. You know? So with Chick-fil-A, when I was looking at that, they had a little different requirements than a lot of places. I think it was, you had to have so much cash in the bank. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with um, net worth or anything like that. Um, and they didn't require any years of food industry service mm-hmm. for them. So, again, a little bit yeah. different because they'll basically train you from the ground up. To okay, yeah, that makes sense. I think in and outs a similar way. You go to, like, their in and out university thing that they have. Um, yeah, that's that's always kind of interests me, the, the franchise side of it, because I could see it going really south really fast. No, for sure. I have a client here that used to be a Chick-fil-A owner, and he didn't, you know, talking to him about different things, uh, they ended up putting him in a mall, and he was a Chick-fil-A franchise owner in a mall. But malls are dying you yeah. know, in a lot of places. Yeah, especially the last few years. Because was, people shopping online, you know, yeah. worried about um, social distancing and stuff like that. Yeah, malls were struggling, so his franchise was yeah, you, doing terrible because no one was visiting the mall. Yeah, you'd think it would be good. It, it don't, yeah, I don't know. Maybe like airports... Something similar, maybe an airport See, but or something. Airport like that. people are going to. Yeah. You know, even a restaurant people are going to, but if no one's going to the mall, no right. one's going to the food court. Yeah. You would think just brand recognition alone would pull you through everything, but yeah, it even I mean, I think uh right now Burger King is looking to close like four hundred plus stores across the country or maybe the world. Which is crazy because Burger King's been around forever, and now it's like they're struggling. I think McDonald's is closing a bunch of their their places, or at least their corporate offices and stuff like that. Well, it's hard with the profit margins, too, because you're talking about uh, minimum wage mm-hmm. going up in a lot of places. The minimum wage in Idaho is pretty low. It's 7.5%. Okay, I think it's similar I mean, in s- Texas. Yeah, 7.25 or 7.50. But the problem is... Uh, to be competitive, they're offering like seventeen, eighteen dollars an hour. Yeah. Like, what is the profit margin on a lot of the, the those places? You know? Yeah, I mean, it's a different industry because I know that like McDonald's had always, you know, imported their their meat and stuff like that from like Brazil or wherever to kind of get around some of the more expensive regulations and things like that, and it could always keep their prices of things lower. But then, you know, no, nobody can get around the amount of inflation we have right now. You know, no, like agreed. 11 trillion plus dollars that's been printed in the last few years. It's like no one's getting around that. So I've, yeah, even the big corporations, the, the brand recognition, it's not going to save you alone. You have to, it, I think it's really bringing out all of the real entrepreneurs, like the people that truly want to be business owners. And then all these other people that have just been kind of riding on these coattails of a soaring economy. 
they're starting to really feel it. No, for sure. And uh, I was pretty blessed, especially with the area that we're at. You know, being a business owner, you know, you see the, you watch the market, you watch, you know, how's the economy doing and stuff like that. Well, being a small business owner, you know, definitely impactful in a lot of ways with that kind of stuff. But North Idaho especially, it's all about Mm community-based. If I can pay a little bit extra and shop local, I'm going to do that. And that's the way the whole community here is, is we're going to get better service. We're going to offer better products than a lot of the bigger places. And... Yeah, you know, the prices may be a little bit lower in some cases, maybe the same, but or a little bit more, but I'm willing to pay that if I can do something local compared to a big corporation. And that's the way a lot of the business owners here are. Yeah, there's a, you can go around and you notice there's not as many chain anything out here. A lot of it is mom and pop shops. Yeah, even the coffee shops, there's like little shacks that are all over the place. You know, I just, I think it's, that's really cool. And I honestly, I think if the economy goes, the economy goes down the way that they're expecting it to, which is already kind of starting, um, it's the local working together, everybody's in community working together. And uh, this like idea of preserving what we have instead of like trying to grow too big, too fast. I feel like a lot of the bigger cities in Montana and stuff, um, or Kalispell area around there, they're growing too big, too fast. Well, that's a hot topic of conversation here mm-hmm. with every election, uh, with every um, you know conversation, because you have such an influx of people coming to this area because it's completely different than where they're coming from. So if, let's use Washington as an example, uh, regulations are getting stricter. Prices are going up. Um, home, homeless populations are increasing. There's constantly stuff that you're, you know, not looking for. And so how do you escape that? Where do you go? Same thing like with me and my family. Um, yes, you know, I love California, but some of the stuff that's driving businesses out. My brother's uh, wife, uh work for a company uh, or works for a company in North Carolina that got driven out of California because half the stuff that they um, build there, they can't even use in California. Environmental stuff. and So they make a bunch of weird stuff. They make uh, um, air filtration systems that go on to like the presidential limo and stuff like that. They work for this... They just make odds and ends stuff that's pretty high-tech and stuff, but I think they even made some weaponry and stuff like that that they can't even use in California because of the regulations. So just one of those things. So, you're, you know, those people are being driven out of some of those states um, where politics may not line up. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the rent mandates and stuff like that where... Hey, I can't evict an, a tenant right. who hasn't paid squatters' rights and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, so it gets tough for the for some of those people. So they're going to different states and looking for refuge mm-hmm. of you know to get away from that. And so uh, North Idaho, Montana, there's definitely an influx of people. Texas, Tennessee, 
a lot of these states are getting inundated with people leaving. Um, obviously, we're on the uh, west side of the United States, so we have a lot of people from the west. But the same thing's happening um, in on the east side of people leaving New York yeah, and Florida. Going, yeah, and yeah, people leaving New York and Philadelphia and uh, Pennsylvania to go to um, Florida, to go to Tennessee, to go to Kentucky, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So this migration of people is definitely happening. And so the problem that local small communities face is how do you um, how do you come or how do you fix the infrastructure and the and all this stuff with so many people coming so fast. How is that done? Yeah. So you have, you know, pro-growth. You have uh, uh, pro-non-growth. Uh-huh. It's just one of those things that everything has to be done yeah. in the right way. Yeah, the, uh, um, I mean, I guess there's a lot of ways, too, where I think about things. If you're like the state government... <laughs> And you're, and you're trying to, say, give government funding or something to a certain city to keep them alive. You're going to look at things in a tier system of, okay, which cities and towns are, for lack of a better term, exporting something that's beneficial to the state. And the smaller towns that aren't doing that are going to get overlooked. And the bigger towns are going to get the ones with all the funding and everything. And that's where all the growth is going to happen. So if you have all these people that are in the rural, super rural areas that don't want any growth and then the roads start breaking down and like the the whole infrastructure of their towns are going away, that's how the towns die. And all of the funding and everything goes to, you know, Coeur d'Alene or uh, Boise or, you know, something like that. How do these smaller communities preserve what they have when they don't care to look at the politics and they don't care to look at about you know, how do the taxes work in the country? Like, what can we bring or export from our area that makes it survive while all these other cities are basically just outgrowing everything? No, for sure. And I think, I think, uh, I think the communities here have done a really good job impacting or uh, dealing with the impact of the people coming in uh, with rebuilding infrastructure, stuff like that. I know the city of Hayden has worked super hard by itself to get some of that stuff done. I know Post Falls is working on a bunch of stuff. Hayden's going to, I think, bring in the high school in a couple of years. Uh, So, uh, again, it's just one of those things that small communities are having to deal with this problem because everyone wants to live in these small communities. And what's happened as well is... Uh, because of the coronavirus, because of social distancing, um, people are fleeing big cities and, hey, I can work remote and do my job just as good, if not better, than being in a corporate office stuffy downtown. So it's one of those things that, you know, giant buildings are sitting vacant because people are moving. Hey, if I if I could choose to live in the inner city of somewhere, or if I can live on a creek or a lake or somewhere else in the forest and still do the same thing, <laughs> I'm going to pick, you know, the, oh, yeah. what's what's best for me. So 
that's why a lot of people are moving out of, you know, bigger cities and stuff like that. That's actually part of the reason why I think that you start shopping local or start doing business with other local businesses, why that's going to thrive. Because rural communities are what feed cities. I just talked to a couple of farmers in Washington and like we get so disconnected from the agricultural world or just the rural communities. They're the ones that grow or make the things and then it's the cities that consume it. Well, if people are moving out of the cities because they can work remote because they're in, you know, uh, you know, advancements and technology and stuff like that, and they start growing the rural areas, that might be good in the sense of economically for the rural area. But things that always follow that are like higher property taxes. And, and I think Idaho has a state income tax, right? Yes, sir. Which is weird because you'd think it wouldn't here. You know, I, th- I don't think Montana does, right? They have no state income. And neither does Washington. But then you look at the like political leanings of both, or especially Washington, and it's super left, Washington and you would think that they would have higher taxes. You know what I mean? It's like, what's the balance? I think Idaho, at least right now, has done a pretty good job of balancing all that, where you have a state income tax and, and stuff. But what is the what are the benefits to that? Like, So, yeah, having... Uh, so, Washington... Uh, that's such a misnomer of not having state income tax. It's just done differently. So, like, uh, they have a tax on labor there. So if, let's say you're hiring a, a somebody to come service your house, they're charging you a sales tax on the labor that you're going there, where in California and Idaho, they don't have that. It's just whatever the product is, you pay for the... Um, you know, if you're buying a cup of coffee, you're paying 6% sales tax. In some areas in California, you know, you're paying 8, 9, 10%. Mm-hmm. It's the same um, way in Texas. Right. So yeah. you're so you're paying and Texas is another state with no uh state income tax. Mm-hmm. Texas has super high property tax. So yeah. again, it's just one of those Where I live, it's higher sales tax than California. Right, that's what I'm saying. So the state's going to get their money either way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just kind of depends. I had a couple clients that ended up moving to the Washington-Oregon border because Washington has no state tax and Oregon has no sales tax. How ethical that is to shop in one and do the other, and there's use tax rules and stuff like that. But um, hey. Do what you got to do, man. <laughs> I'm just telling you that's 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 going to be done. Um, I have to use the restroom. We can take a break real quick. Perfect. Okay. All right. So I want to talk about the um, some of the implications when we start moving toward more digital currencies and stuff like that. I don't. Have you heard of the Fed Now um, program that they're the Federal Reserve is releasing in July? I have not. You haven't. Um, it's Interesting, and I think it coincides with a lot of the banking collapses that are happening. Um, what it seems like is happening is all of these smaller banks are failing because you know they've been lending bad loans and all this stuff. And there's like a handful of big banks like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs that are basically buy- bailing out or buying those banks. So like um, One Republic Bank crashed. The government came in and seized it, put it up for auction. And instead of 
taking the money and bailing out One Republic, they gave fifty. They printed fifty billion dollars, gave it to J.P. Morgan, and J.P. Morgan bought it. And what it seems like is happening is there's a consolidation of banking, the banking world, and at the same time, simultaneously, the Federal Reserve has been working on creating a central bank digital currency, where they use a blockchain technology to. Um, basically have their own currency as the dollar starts collapsing, which seems like it's just, that's what's happening. And when the big banks take on these little banks, bad loans, eventually they're going to collapse and everybody's going to freak out and the government's going to say, hey, we got this other thing that you can use where basically instead of paying, like if I wanted to buy something from you, I use PayPal or Cash App or something goes from my bank, uses the PayPal platform, and then goes into your bank, takes like one to three business days, or bigger bank transactions, ACH transactions, it takes a long time. They're going to come out with this thing that says, hey, you can just pay directly into the central bank, the Federal Reserve, which is outside of our government and system, and then the central bank will then issue that money to the person that you bought from. The dangers are they can look at what you're buying, social credit score thing where maybe we don't like what you said on social media, we can shut you down, kind of like what they did with PayPal and stuff or the truckers up in Canada. And that's all getting released in July. It's like a beta test, but it's all happening right now. It's, uh, to me, that's kind of nerve-wracking to have that much control over all that kind of stuff. And I think that's where, you know, small banks and private banks have, you know, really... uh, are important to our economy because then not one person is owning all that stuff or one entity is owning all that stuff with the fed being able to do blockchain. That's definitely kind of scary for sure. Yeah. I mean, for a while um, they were picking different, different companies or different, different technologies and they were testing them out. And the one that they were using for a while before they announced this fed now program was called Cypherium and it was some Chinese based, blockchain company. China basically already does this similar thing. I was going to say, China's been working on this for a long time. They've been trying to outlaw people getting Bitcoin and people mm-hmm. doing any currency other than the, the Chinese blockchain. Yeah. So, you know, I hear China is the name China and I'm like, okay, that's a red flag. What's going on here? And now the Federal Reserve is wanting to do that. So, um, last year, I want to say it was March of last year, Biden signed Executive Order 14067. And that was basically to expand this program and basically say, yeah, let's uh, let's move forward with this thing. And this is all happening, and they're basically not talking about it on the news. They'll talk about the banking collapse and, oh, my gosh, the banking, you know, banking infrastructure's, you know, not doing too hot. But they don't talk about what's happening on the back end. And I think that, not saying that this is going to be released overnight, but everybody knows that the dollar is like super inflated right now. It's not even hit it yet. You have all of the the BRICS nations around the world wanting to come together. We're not paying for, they're not paying for oil in dollars. They're paying for it in either rubles or yuan or something like that. Whereas that's arguably what backed the dollar for a long time. And... That's like, that's like end game for the dollar because everybody knows that the dollar is basically worthless. The only thing that kept it valuable was because it was the world reserve currency and everybody just 
decided to use it. Yeah, and I think before that you had, you know, what was called the gold standard where it was actually backed by actual gold. And that's where I think uh, I have a good friend of mine uh, who has actually worked for a Bitcoin mining company. He worked in the AI department. He's a pretty awesome guy. Um, and he kind of explained a lot of how digital currency is going to take over um, down the road. We, I thought it would... He thought it would uh, end up being a little bit faster than what it has been. Uh, but basically, the blockchain system, with it having a limited amount of actual coins. For and, Bitcoin specifically. Yeah, yeah, for Bitcoin specifically, where, all right, you have you know X amount that's released, and that's based on uh, X amount of com- computing power. Mm-hmm. And then the next following year... It's going to be even more ramped up. It's even going to be more restricted to make it even harder to get to. And then eventually it'll cap off completely. What the what that'll do is it'll create a finite number of, this is the exact number of Bitcoins, period. And there's not going to be any more. I think it's like 21 million of them. I yeah, think. so then what happens is once that's capped, it's capped. And so what that does is it kind of creates what we had in the back in the day with the gold standard is we have X amount of gold in the reserve and this is what we're going to be based mm-hmm. off of where now what what is the dollar actually based off of? Right. And so with us printing money just because we want to, I mean, it's really driving down the dollar and something has to break somewhere along the line between digital currency and the dollar. Right. The thing that worked, because I personally believe that Bitcoin is like the perfect currency because it, it, it solves the basic facts. And then once, say, all of them are mined, then it's like, okay, well, then all that's left is its adoption. As soon as utility is like on point, which they've talked about um, linking it with the Lightning Network, so it's a lot faster and the fees are way less and stuff. Um, I think that's like the perfect thing. The issue has always been, if you look at the central banks and central planners of the world, they want control. It's never been about the people having control with this decentralized network. So with a lack of, it's like all of crypto is in this limbo waiting for the SEC to figure out what's a currency, what's a security, and everybody's just waiting. And it's like, if we're waiting on a government agency or regulatory agency to decide for us what is right and what is wrong. It's not really that decentralized. No, for sure. I know uh, a few years ago, uh, the taxes, uh, one of the required questions that we'd have to ask our clients, uh, and it was kind of a joke at the time, it was, have you ever bought, sold, exchanged, or otherwise acquired any financial or digital currency? And... Uh, the answer was always ha ha ha. What is what is digital currency? How do right. I how do I get that? No, of course not. Well, now it's becoming the norm. Most people, I would say, are saying yes compared to no compared to three, four, five years ago, where it was right. not the norm. And you look at the you know financial landscape, and here's NFL players that are taking their whole 
salaries in digital currency. You have, you know, some government agencies, I think out of Florida, that were paying their employees in digital currency. And you can see it like on websites, hey, Mm -hmm. uh, we take digital currency exchange for actual dollars on people's website and for, you know, uh, different stuff that you can buy online. And I think as this becomes more commonplace, I think that's... even going to more drive down the dollar price. Yeah. I mean, in this whole thing with the Fed now, like everybody thinks the dollar collapses and then it's like anarchy, which it might be for a little while. And that pressure of the population being like, yo, we can't buy food. Yeah. And And, North Idaho is especially known for that. We have uh a lot of people um, out here that are, so worried about the dollar collapsing that they're doing, I'm not saying bad decisions, but pulling all your money out of the market or right. stuff like that to put into silver and gold. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's a bad idea, but at the same time, you're not getting your return on your investment. Mm-hmm. As <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, there's so much to it. It's, it's really hard to, I, I feel like whenever I talk on this, I'm not hitting the audience that I really want to talk to sometimes because I feel like I'm talking to people that just don't understand how money works and they don't even know what gold standard is. So they're like, what does that mean when we're off the gold standard? What does that mean? I just have dollars. I pay for things. And I think I'm trying to direct it at small businesses because this stuff is what makes or breaks your business because knowing the currency that you're using and how it works is how you're going to survive no matter what economic situation is happening. And why is it that Silicon Valley Bank, even though you don't have your money in them, why that if them collapsing affects you? And then the decisions of our politicians, the decisions of private organizations like the Federal Reserve, the decisions they make, why that all affects you. And in your case, you, you do taxes on it. So if this whole system changes to where it's now, say the dollar's backed by a blockchain technology now, and it goes directly to the Federal Reserve, how does that, how would that change? Yeah, that would, I mean, that would change a whole lot of things. One is the reporting on it. That, that to me is going to be one of the biggest factors is how is it going to be reported? Because for years it's kind of been <clears throat> the Wild West to where who's reporting? Right. One of the reasons why they set it up in the beginning is so it's not reported. So I think being able to come up with a structure for that is going to be one of the biggest uh, deals for that. And with you talking about that, I know I want to say it's the uh, South American country. I want to say Venezuela or one of those countries. They were talking about moving their whole currency right now to being based off of uh, Bitcoin and digital. I think currency. El Salvador did it. Yeah, one. Yeah. Of, I think one of the, like I said, one of the South American mm-hmm. countries is doing all that. And if the uh, Bitcoin picks up, then that would, let's say, Bitcoin rebounds and it doubles or triples. Well, if you can make your whole economy's uh, country's economy double or triple in a matter of time, like that's a big deal, right? And you're gonna get it's a big risk. It is a huge risk yeah. because uh, 
Yeah, right now all digital yeah. currency is a giant risk. Yeah. So how does that look for the future for the thing? It's almost like they're gambling on the on the country's thing. That's why I think you're, t- you know, when you say Fed Now is doing their own blockchain, I think that's what they're trying to. Yeah, I mean, and Fed Now is just our version of it. Um, there's other countries around the world that are also looking at doing a central bank digital currency. Um, there's a program that's been kind of all around the world where various countries, I have to look at which one's like the updated list, but there's various countries that are looking at this thing called ISO 20,022. I don't know why they pick these names. It's weird. (laughs) But um, you heard of XRP or Ripple Labs. They're in a big lawsuit with the SEC right now. The SEC is trying to like figure out, are they a security or a currency to know how to handle that whole thing? XRP, Algorand, Stellar Lumens, which is XLM, those were some big names that were used for this ISO 20,022 thing that other countries are adopting. It's the same thing. It's a central bank digital currency. And uh, little countries are adopting these things. And I think they're seeing a potential for this stuff to take off because everybody knows the dollar is collapsing. And it's on purpose. You don't just print $11 trillion for no reason. You know what you're doing. And so... Montenegro is going to be is looking at doing a central bank digital currency. Um, you have all these other countries that were allies with the United States that are now joining or wanting to join the BRICS nations, which they're talking about having their blockchain technology backed by gold. So all the gold bugs out there, they're like, "Ooh, gold! It's going to go up," but they're basically betting on China and Russia and uh, you know Brazil, India. South Africa, and then like a couple hundred other nations that are wanting to join them, which I guess in a sense you could say is like the Axis versus the Allies, you know, if it's them versus us. But if we use the dollar and the dollar collapses, what replaces it? And how does that affect all of small business? Yeah, and if the dollar collapsed, there'd be a huge impact on the whole global economy. Right. And that's, you know, not just going to affect everyone here, small businesses to giant corporations, but that's going to have giant ripple around the whole world. And you already seen that with the inflation going up and us printing the money and stuff like that. You can see that, you know, all over the place. Like, look at the cost of uh, eggs, look at the cost of uh, milk and all this other stuff. And obviously there's a huge factor into that as well as farming and stuff like that. But you can just uh, see, all right, if I'm going to McDonald's and they're saying that the you can get a job there at $18 an hour starting out, like that's a huge wage for, uh, for most people. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's some areas of the country where that's not enough to live off of. But at the same time, like, how does that affect with inflation? I would Everything's going to keep going up. Yeah, I would say up. now 18 an hour is with the amount of inflation. And the inflation that they report is always smaller than the actual inflation. So 18 an hour to me, in my opinion, is like minimum wage now based on the percent of inflation that's going on. If, if you're already living paycheck to paycheck... And you're making, if you're not making enough for a, a living wage, you're either going to have to go get a second job, which means the current employer is going to have to work with your schedule. And if they don't want to, you're going to have to leave and go find somewhere else. 
And so this is the pressure that the inflation and all these decisions of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and all that stuff are making that are putting onto business in the country. It almost seems intentional, but then you have this other thing in the background where it's like, why would they print 11 trillion plus dollars in a few years? And then they're not even injecting that into our economy. They're giving it to Ukraine or they're giving it to gender studies in India or something like, why would you print that and not put it in our economy? You know, for sure. And uh, one of the things that I thought was super weird about um, some of the stimulus packages that we did to help boost the economy. Like PPP loan and things like that. Well, that's a little bit different. I'm talking about the standard, because PPP loans and the EIDL loans and stuff like that were directly for small businesses, even the larger businesses hop in and yeah, oh yeah. Because what it was like a small business is like three hundred employees and less or something like that. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but yeah, Mm -hmm. it was it was crazy and some huge large firms were taking giant checks from the government for that. But no, I'm talking about like the I think the second and third rounds of stimulus to help boost the economy. The what they did was they started sending out gift cards, like prepaid gift cards, instead of uh, doing the direct deposits or a check. Mm-hmm. And what happened with that is a lot of them were stolen, but a lot of them, you know, let's say you didn't want to uh, put the money into the economy. Say you wanted to put it, you into, know, put it into a savings or, yeah, put it into crypto. All of a sudden you have this card that you can't do anything with but spend. And so it didn't really give a whole lot of flexibility. But the problem is a lot of people didn't really help boost the economy with those cards. It didn't really sure. do what they set out. It boosted the crypto market. Were, no, for sure. Yeah, because that was like everybody's hedge during that time. That's like crypto went bananas during that time. Bitcoin went to like 60,000 plus. Um I was I was kind of making a point, and I, I don't know if on on your end as you track people's transactions and things, you good? Sorry, man. <laughs> it's okay. Um, it's almost because crypto isn't like part of our economy; it's like its own thing. Even though there's big hedge funds and banks and stuff that will have a portfolio of crypto, when you take your money and put it into crypto you're basically taking it out of the economy and putting it into something else. Correct. Yes, sir. Yeah. So if that's the case, how are, how is the government or central banks or even the SEC, how are they tracking that? Because it's almost, it's almost seems like a way to inadvertently launder money. So, yeah, I mean, laundering money through crypto is a big deal. Uh, the black market, a lot of that stuff is done through crypto instead of uh, dollars and stuff like that. Uh, doing my due diligence classes and doing my intuitive education classes, they talk and hit on digital currency a lot with, mm-hmm. hey, keep an eye out for this for money laundering, keep an eye out for this, uh, you know, for some of that kind of stuff for sure. And going back to what I said about that question, uh, that the IRS made us ask, hey, did you have any cryptocurrency? And it was kind of laughable a few years ago, but the reason why they were asking that is because it was not reported to any, you know, right. Coinbase, Coinly, 
all these different wallets that they have, no one was reporting anything to the Internal Revenue Service. So it was almost like an honor system True. to say, hey, Uncle Sam, yes, I do have this money, and yes, I do, I have made money off of that. And to me, if you give somebody an honor system, hey, you have to pay taxes on something that's not reportable. Yeah, um, they're going to abuse that. Yeah, yeah they're going to abuse that like crazy. And so that's why... Uh, I think in the last couple of years that they've really leaned on some of those wallet-based companies to mm-hmm. start reporting, and finally they started. They yeah, started well, I mean, you know, there's things like how do I protect my cryptocurrency? You know, if you have your, if you buy it on Coinbase or something, they have the keys to it, and so then there's like ways for illegal activity to happen from the clip crypto platform where they actually like take your stuff that you paid for and there's nothing you can do about it. So people are like, well, you can put it in a cold storage. So you're just buying it on, you still have to buy it on a trading platform and then put, you have your keys and you put it into cold storage so nobody can touch it. And it'll go up and down with the market, just like a, you know, if you had money in a bank or something, but you still have to use crypto or trading platforms to get the money out if you want to convert it to anything. So in my opinion, if there's billions of cryptocurrencies out there, they're going to go, if they want to control that, they're going to go after the trading platforms themselves. No, agreed. So. And I I want to say, I don't remember the name of the company, but Tom Brady was hitting it hard with one of those crypto Oh, I think it was like crypto.com or something like that. And so yeah. I, that ended up in a giant lawsuit where tons of people are getting sued because the platform wasn't. Yeah, I think stable enough to. I think the old Staples Center Arena is like the Crypto. dot com Arena or something now, isn't it? Or was it? There's another one. Yeah, I know there's a professional stadium. I think named after a crypto thing. Yeah. For sure. Um. Yeah, and then the whole FTX Sam Bankman Freed fraud thing that happened, which apparently they're going to be reopening and start trading and stuff again, which I don't know how anybody's going to trust them to do that, but whatever, I guess. Yeah, but big banks have done that too. Mm-hmm. I know a few years ago, Wells Fargo got nailed and their stock plummeted a ton because they were setting up extra accounts for people that they didn't actually have set up. They were charging uh, processing fees for all these different things that they didn't actually have. And so, you know, Wells Fargo got nailed and people still trusted them and they're still one of the largest banks in the U.S. Yeah. I, it's just, it's so complicated. And I guess there's something to be said about smaller businesses just being like, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. Um, it's just, it's that time period in between where it's the most painful. Like, I want to protect small business. That's like my ultimate goal is to protect the whole thing. But there's a lot of people that are just not going to survive. And I, and I kind of agree with that. And with small businesses, I think a lot of, uh, you know, just like m- most Americans live paycheck to paycheck, I think a lot of, uh, you know, small businesses are, you know, they're doing pretty good, but a lot of them are literally hanging on by a thread. Yeah. And that's, you know, every year in a good economy or a bad, just because there's so much pressure, there's so much other stuff. If I own a small mom-and-pop retail store and Amazon comes along, how do you compete with big-time Amazon when, hey, 
uh, we're selling office supplies or we're selling stuff like that. Sure. It's easy to go buy some of those big things. So I think, uh, you know, there's always that risk for a small business when it comes to financial security. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the government's working against small business, you know, the whole reason Amazon grew so big was because they didn't have to pay taxes for like 15 years. The government was like, here you go. And they just, they just took off. So it's like, okay, well, yeah, if you give them that giant tax break, then obviously, or, you know, Tesla or SpaceX or something like that, of course, they're going to make all this money because it's all subsidized. And then it all, all the tax write-offs for R and D, you know, of course they're going to thrive, but all small business are the ones that get taxed into oblivion. Remember until recently, the NFL, not the individual teams, but the NFL by itself was a nonprofit. Was it really? Yeah. NFL was a nonprofit because it was a nonprofit put in place to oversee the 32 other teams. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. Look it up. They're now a corporation now, but just think about the billions of dollars of revenue and the NFL was a nonprofit. Dude, that's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's stuff like that. Like Not a 501c3 where you could donate to it, but they didn't have to pay income tax. So more like a, well, I guess it wouldn't be like a church or something. No, more like a HOA almost, like on a large scale. Dude, what the frick? How do I do that? <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've, something I'll ask you because I brought up that VA loan thing. Um, if I were wanting to get a property out here and do like multifamily, like a multiplex or something like that, but I wanted to get a big enough property, could I make a portion of it agriculture, agricultural and get an exemption on that? So out here, that is a big deal. Okay. I don't know the exact rules and the regulations, but yes, you can get a, a break uh, for being agricultural and you can also get a break on insurance as well for being agricultural. Okay. You actually have to do the agriculture. You have to have livestock. You have to have some sort of farm. But yeah, that's a big deal out here. And people are doing that all the time. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of creative ways. Like if I'm going to draw people to a certain thing, it would be more of like a, not a budget place to live, but more of a somewhat luxurious place to live. But the certain amenities that you give them, instead of just like a playground and a dog park, like, what are the other things that you could do where, you know, like ha- have like a community garden or like a way for them to be like that to be self-sufficient? Yeah, I think just the area in general. I had a I have a client that basically does an Airbnb, but they do it a little bit different. They actually have a farm and they actually teach people how to homestead. So okay. how to live off grid. Uh, what is it like to have a uh, dairy cow? What is it like to have chickens? What is it like to, uh, you know, grow your own crops? What is it? Sure. So I think... It's like a 4-H or something like that. Yeah. So that's basically his Airbnb, the way it's set up. Yeah. Is he teaches people how to homestead and to kind of live off grid, which is a big deal for North Idaho is being sure. independent. Yeah. So let's say the dollar does collapse. Let's say... Um, you know, uh, the government goes in the wrong direction or something like that. North Idaho, they're geared towards being self-sufficient. 
underground bunkers. They have, you know, <laughs> yeah. different things. Uh, radio hubs uh, set up to do relay stations and stuff like that yeah. in case stuff goes down. So that's what life uh, for a lot of people up here is like, is basically, all right, if something like that happens to the government or to the dollar, people are out here ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's just, I don't know, man. It's it's still, it's like bringing that everything local. Like, Amazon and these big corporations are always going to find a way to continue what they do. But it's, they can only do what they do based on government regulation because they're working in a global economy. That the government's siding with them to control everything, us normal people have to work together. That's the only way that you combat yeah. that. So... The farmer's markets are a huge thing out here, locally grown uh, food, stuff like that. There's many restaurants here that are only farm-to-table restaurants. So they'll tell you, hey, these fruits and vegetables were grown here, either in Washington or uh, locally in Idaho. This cattle was raised on this ranch up north or, you know, whatever that case is. But it's a big deal here, you know. Um, not just buying local, but even some of the restaurants buy their sure. food and stuff local here too. Yeah. Um, so I think that whole, the IRS hiring 87,000 agents and things like that, I think that didn't pass, right? They so, didn't fund that. So to me, uh, I've never been afraid of that as much as a lot of people I know. People were panicked. 87, you know that number that was always mm -hmm. thrown around and all these guys are going to carry guns and all this kind of stuff and all that stuff. The IRS, to be honest, needs more help. If you call them right now, uh, I think it's almost 11 o'clock here right now, but if you call them right now, it's going to be a three or four hour wait just to be on the phone with them. Mm -hmm. Chances are the, pro the person's probably working at home and your phone is going to get disconnected before the end of that call. Yeah. So to me, you know, a lot of people are panicking, but the IRS needs more people to work more efficiently. And I know that sounds kind of scary or daunting to a lot of people, but, you know, the IRS is there to uh, make sure that people, I'm not condoning the IRS. I'm, you know, it's <laughs> not saying how hey, those guys are awesome, but I'm just saying, you know, to make sure that stuff is done correctly sure. too. Like I have constantly have clients that need to get, you know, stuff resolved and I can't because there's not enough people working there to resolve the issues that I have yeah. with clients. So like if you do an amended right return right now, instead of taking the normal two or three months, some of those are taking a year, year and a half. And so again, getting some more help for those guys. Sure. Helps everyone. Yeah, I mean, um, it, when I saw that, because I thought it was curious timing. You had the announcement from Lael Brainerd, who's the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, talking about the Fed now thing. Then you had the executive order from Biden expanding that. And at the same time, they're talking about these 87,000 IRS agents. Yeah, and that was the thing that was weird to me is their revenue agents with guns is basically what it came down yeah. to. And so that part to me was a little bit weird um, and a little scary, but the IRS definitely needs... They need help. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, the DMV needs help, too. 
So does the VA. So does every government program. Yes. Like they all suck because they're not run efficiently. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's. I don't know, man. I I see like the tax industry. You're you're gonna always be there, but I see if this is a real major shift in how the world works, similar to post World War II, the Industrial Revolution and stuff. If we're having a major shift like that to all digital, how does that affect the tax world? I mean. So again, it's just a matter of being able to track and be able to legitimize a lot of this stuff. It's hard. Uh, it almost works the way the Internal Revenue Service looks at some of this stuff is bartering. Mm-hmm. It's basically the same thing. So if I'm paying uh, digital currency for something, uh, yes, you can write that off. But yes, on the other side, it's still taxable. And what is the value of that? Mm-hmm. The difference, the big difference is uh, if I exchange, it, like let's say I bought a cup of coffee and it was five bucks, but now I'm using digital currency to pay for that. You have the initial purchase of that coffee of five digital currency. Right. But now that digital currency is also increasing in value too. So it's almost adds another layer of oh, complication I didn't think about that. that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and then if it goes directly to, if it were to go directly into the Federal Reserve, who's a private entity, then it would, there would be no need for the IRS. They would just expand the Federal Reserve, right? So remember the Internal Revenue Service. Yeah, you can, you can definitely increase the Federal Reserve, but the Internal Revenue Service is there to uh, monitor what Congress has imposed on us for mm-hmm. tax implications. So even if they were able to monitor everything through the Fed Reserve, they would still be stuff outside of that. Uh, how does bartering work? How does actually paying silver or gold if the dollar was completely gone? There'd still be different things that you would have to do mm-hmm. to report, and I think the IRS is going to be there regardless. I mean, that's that's saying that the government is doing what they're actually supposed to, and they're not operating out independently of what the voters say, right? That's true, too. Yeah. Because the federal know. the Federal Reserve was unconstitutional when it was created. Yeah, but more people need to write their congressmen and state mm-hmm. assemblymen and stuff like that because or freaking run, yeah. run for office if nobody is good, they all suck. Yeah, I think uh, you know more people people whine and complain about government and politics and stuff like that. But how many times have you written your congressman about you know what your what your complaints are. Sure. How many times have you voiced your opinion to those people? Because they're elected officials, that means we voted them in. Mm-hmm. And if enough people stand up and say, hey, this isn't done with the way it should be, then they'll end up being forced to change it or being forced out. Yeah. And so I think more people taking voting serious, I think more people taking what's going on serious. A lot of people complain about, hey, this is really crappy what's going on, but how many times have people actually voiced their complaints either through writing emails or going in person to see their elected officials? Yeah, I do think that there has been a bit of an awakening over the last few years. You know, maybe not initially when all the COVID stuff started happening, but when we saw afterwards, like all of the information that was hidden from the public, uh, side effects of things and like 
just all the lies and everything, everything started getting exposed. Everybody's like, okay, well, I did the thing and I'm still not able to do this. Like, everybody's starting to wake up and, you know, we have access to the internet at the moment. Not everything is censored and the information is out there. So people are kind of becoming more aware of how our government is doing things or not doing things. Yeah, and you you were in the Marines, correct? Yeah, oh yeah. So my nephew in the Navy and my brother-in-law in the Navy, um, some of the stuff that was forced on them, like if yeah. they don't believe in the coronavirus or they don't believe in the vaccine, hey, get this by the government or you're out. Yeah. Like that's not fair to put people's lives and livelihoods in jeopardy yeah. over that. And I understand in quotes, them trying to keep, you know, yeah. everything from spreading and doing all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But at the same time, a lot of that's control. Yeah, there's an attorney that's been suing literally everybody on this, and that's why they reversed all of the, um, all of that stuff in the military was because he sued them and won. Because what they did was technically illegal. They went around our entire system on a lot of it, um, but. Like it takes participation. It takes people standing up in their profession and saying this isn't right, and then they fight for it. They look at their town council and they say, "All these people suck. I'm going to run because I can do it better." And then it takes everybody else who's not running to vote for that person. Yeah, we all have to participate. That's what this country is. It's a constant. You know, yeah. our constitution lays it out. We're a what is it? Democratic republic. So yeah, when our country was founded. Uh, Basically, the states were going to govern themselves, and then the counties and cities were basically going to be under that. So basically, the small would help increase the large, and then the federal government was going to basically oversee and make sure that, you know, we work together as basically city-states. Yeah. So uh, we've gone off the rails with that a lot. And I'm not saying that we need to overthrow the government or anything crazy mm-hmm. like that. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that people need to take more action and they need to take more steps to helping their communities and helping the politics. Because again, if you don't like the way things are being ran or you have complaints about this then do something about it, change, yeah. change, uh, you know how that looks if it's running for you know town council if it's you know running on a state assembly if it's running for senate like your HOA yeah your, yeah. yeah anything to help your community to get better either local state or national sure you know and that's part of you know one of the other reasons why I did this podcast was talking to people that wouldn't normally be on a podcast there's so many people that are experts in their own right on what they do because they get up and do it every day or they've been doing it for decades. They just don't feel like they have a voice anymore. I think that goes into the demoralization that's happened in our society where regular people just feel like they're too small to make a difference. But the way that your voice gets louder is by more of you saying the same thing. I completely agree. You know, I think if we really talk to people, you know, in person, not on Facebook or something, we actually talk to people and get to know them. You have more in common with people than you actually think. And what you think should be done to fix the world, there's a lot more people agreeing on that. But if you look on social media or the you know, news or something, they make it look like we're all divided. And we're and, really not. And I think in the last couple of years, they've really tried to drive a wedge through that too. Like we have a dual party system. We have you know Democrats and we have Republicans. 
we have some third parties too, but we have two main uh, political parties, and it's almost like I hate the way this is, but it's almost like uh, sports. You either like this team yep. or you like this team. You like the red team or you like the blue team, and it's like no one's open-minded enough to get the issues resolved. They're just, I hate this people because they're in this political party or I hate this person because or their beliefs because they're, instead of trying to better the community or better, uh, you know, the situation, it's just becomes a sports team. Either your team wins or my team wins and there's nothing to do with the actual game itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, but I think people don't vote that way. Yeah, they literally look and say, all right, that guy's a Republican. I'm voting for him. This person's a Democrat. I'm voting for them. Yeah. And they literally don't take the time to look yeah. at what that candidate stands for. Or you they- can have somebody <laughs> with the complete opposite views as you, but because they wrote Republican or Democrat, oh, we're just voting for them because they didn't take the time to research who that person is or what they stand for. Yeah, and... Or they, they, it's like whenever you don't watch any football games in the preseason, the season, the playoffs, nothing, but you go over to the Super Bowl party and you're like, who's everybody going for? And you're like, I'm going to go for the other team just because, and they don't really care about it and that's how they vote. It's the same thing. They're not paying attention to what's actually going on in the world and like how to do it or they just don't vote at all. I don't care. I don't care who wins. Yeah, or I don't like the candidates, so I'm not going to vote. And to me... It's so important to do your research and sure. see what the topics are and what, you know, Yeah. hey, what does this person stand for? And that's the way our co- country was set up is the individual small people, uh, small voices collectively have the power to change everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you got to think about it from a political campaign point of view, too. If you got... on each side is the base. They're just always going to vote for their party. Regardless. They have to figure out how do we get this middle section of people, the majority of people who are on the fence, we need them to fall off the fence on one side or the other so we know how to quantify who to target in the next election. Yeah, and that's why the political favors and the lobbyists are such a big deal because where's the money coming from from those campaigns? Those lobbyists coming in and saying, hey, help me scratch my back and I'll basically fund you know this or that or hey let me offer incentives let me cancel all student loan debt let me cancel all Mm -hmm. this or that and yeah if i have yeah that sounds amazing let me vote that direction and to me it's hollow it's shallow Mm -hmm. what are the bigger picture tickets and for some people yes student loans are a huge deal in their life they're drowning in student loan debt and stuff like that but at the same time like i feel that it has to be more involvement it has to be bigger issues that come to the front yeah i mean we could talk about we could talk about that for days probably on end (laughs) but uh yeah, this was a really good talk, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to, yeah, no to talk with me and stuff. We're coming up on two hours here, so you're probably past your 11 o'clock deadline. But no, you're good. Um, yeah, if I move up here, I'll definitely be in contact with you about different things because yeah, I like what you do up here, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's such a wonderful community. We have a lot of small business owners. The 
you know, do a really good job. A lot of the local officials also do a super bang up job when it comes to, you know, growth and stuff like that. So definitely if you decide to move up here, hit me up. I know you're meeting with Dave Fowler in the next yep. couple of days. Who's, Get some of the realtor perspective. Yeah. And uh, he's also law enforcement in California. And now uh, I think he's law enforcement up here and then he was firefighter down in. Oh, yeah. So yeah. firefighter down uh, in California, law enforcement up here. Uh, so he's got some, you know, great views on things too. So. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks again. How can people get a hold of you if they want to? Yeah. So uh, business is growing. We're just about to launch a brand new website. That's going to be at uh, tax RFS as in uh, Robinson financial services. So tax RFS.com. Uh, you can email us at Tom at tax RFS or reach out at 208-719-9001. Do you guys have any like social media or anything like that? So we do. I'm not a huge social media yeah. guy as anyone knows me. Like that is not my thing, but yeah, we're on Facebook and on Instagram. I don't know the handles. So I bet if you type in yeah. Robinson Financial Service, it probably pops up. Yeah. You, yeah. You got me. Okay. So. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks again. Everybody, please share the podcast and stay tuned for more episodes coming up. All right.